Good evening, brothers, sisters, young people, and friends of God's Word. Please open your Bibles again to Jude. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Tonight is the last night of the Arkansas Bible School, and when you're the speaker on the last night, you get to hear everything from the beginning of the week, and you can either adapt your exhortation by eliminating or even having another one or, or to reiterate. And I know that this subject tonight, first part of it, has been covered fairly extensively this week, but I chose to leave it as is. There's one question that I want to ask right now. How many young people that are in the Bobby Cox's class, age 15, and how many are left here tonight? Yeah, raise your hands. So we still have a few. That's good. I might ask you a question. I might not. If you looked up the word faith in Webster's Dictionary... It would be defined as belief and trust in lo and loyalty to God, complete confidence, something that is believed in, especially with strong conviction. Now, Bible students are familiar with the Bible definition that's given in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and I want to ask those people that I just called on if they could give me, anybody would like to give me the Bible definition of faith. Who said that? Okay, very good. The Bible definition is given in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance, and in my Bible, the margin reads ground or confidence, of things hoped for, the evidence of things which are eternal, not seen. Faith is one of the principal elements that make up the character of the man of God. It is faith or belief in God, the one true and living God, the God of Israel. The man of God has faith in this God of Israel and believes that he is revealed in the scriptures in his dealings with the children of Israel. And so his faith is established in the God of Israel and in his promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, David, and the prophets. He has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, whom God sent unto the world to be mankind's Redeemer and Savior from the effects of sin and death. This is the faith that the Apostle Paul commends when he declares in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please him. It's impossible to please God without faith. It is a faith that is personally attached to and takes onto itself the divine being alone and takes its stand on that wonderful truth here declared that God is 
and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now we have a wonderful illustration of this kind of faith in the life of our father, Abraham. When God made promises to him, Abraham believed God. It is written in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he, and that's talking about God, had promised, he was also able to perform. And we read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Yes, God counted that faith to Abraham for righteousness. And not only so, but God called him his friend in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. Among the saints to whom faith was delivered, perhaps there was none greater than Abraham, who was called the friend of God. To Abraham, God revealed his great plan of redemption in a covenant, wherein he made certain promise to him of an inheritance in a land wherein he was then a stranger. These promises involved eternal life to the inheritor. At the same time, Abraham was informed that he should go to his fathers in peace, that he should be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they, his seed, should come hither again, as we read in Genesis chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. Deity not only promised the land to Abraham's seed, but to Abraham himself, to Abraham himself for an everlasting inheritance, as we read in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. We see then by this that God promised the land lying between the river of Egypt and the great rivers Euphrates, as we read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, already referred to, that to Abraham it was promised, that land was promised to Abraham and Christ for an everlasting inheritance. Moreover, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, the following, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Has God ever fulfilled his promise to Abraham? Has God ever fulfilled his promise to Abraham. We hear Stephen saying in Acts chapter 7, verse 5, speaking of Abraham, and he gave him none inheritance in it, 
No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. The writer to the Hebrews enumerates a number of the old worthies, among whom is Abraham in chapter 11, verse 8. And then he adds in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, the question is, will God ever fulfill these promises to Abraham? We hear the prophet Micah declaring in Micah chapter 7, verse 20, Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Now this was written upward of a thousand years after Abraham's day. Just as we've seen, God has not given the land to Abraham. Yet, has he given it to Christ for a possession? Certainly not at his first appearing, because Jesus himself declared, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Both Jesus and his followers belong to the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he, and I'm talking of God, promised, hath promised to them that love him, which we read about in James chapter 2, verse 5. The patriarchs of old saw the promises afar off. They were fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform, as we read in Romans chapter 4, verse 21. By the eye of faith, they could look beyond the present to a time expressed in Job chapter 19, when the living Redeemer should stand upon the earth in the latter day, when all the faithful from Adam down to that time shall come forth from the dust of death to be made like unto deity, and given an entrance into the inheritance of the saints in light, having been delivered from the power of darkness and changed for the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is the great salvation which first began to be spoken by our Lord, that which is common to all men, and that for which as servants of the just one, we are exhorted to contend earnestly. Well, the next element in the character of the man of God is patience. Now, this word has special applicability to the times in which we live, where people of our society do not stress patience, but stress just the opposite. Our lack of patience often shows in our actions and in our speech. We've heard the expression, actions speak louder than words. Well, how true this is. Our speech tells on us, too. Just think about such phrases that are indicative of the lack of patience. Phrases such as, do it now, don't wait, get it while you can, just do it. Well, we are instructed in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, to be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith is a characteristic of the man of God, 
But patience, as a characteristic of the man of God, expresses the mental attitude of the person having the patience. Scriptural patience includes not only patience in the common sense of the word as being something contrary to irritability or hastiness, but it includes endurance, steadfastness, and persistence. When Jesus was encouraging or trying to prepare his disciples to go through the great persecutions that they would have to endure, he said in Luke chapter 21, verse 19, In your patience possess ye your souls. And then in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, he said, But he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Now we have in the scriptures a wonderful example or illustration also of patience, like we have a wonderful illustration of faith. The scriptures especially call upon us to consider God's servant Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, we read, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Well, here we have the scripture showing us the character of Job. In reading the book of Job, we see that Job lost all things. His family, his friends, his property, his health, and the loyal support of his wife. Yet Job had patience and remained steadfast, never giving up on God. We have need of patience, brethren, especially in regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How long the brethren have waited, hoping... James says, Brethren, be patient unto the coming of the Lord. And then Peter helps us when he gives us one reason for our being patient. He says, A thousand years are as one day with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, have patience with God. Have patience with God. He has had long patience with us and with the world. Let us have patience with him, and let us also have patience with each other. The creator of this universe places an inestimable value on faith in him and having patience, even if at times we do not at all understand why why certain things enter into our lives. Well, God never answered Job's question as to why he suffered. He did remind him of the wonders of the vast creation he had called into being. The answer appears to be given in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 23, of which Job and we are a part. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. We are exhorted 
brothers and sisters, to have faith and patience, to build character that will be pleasing to God. Now, we can learn to build this character by following the advice given to us in the epistle of James. The theme of the epistle is expressed in the key verse. Let's look at that. James, the book of James, chapter 2. That key verse is chapter 2, verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So the general theme of the epistle of James, therefore, is faith in action. This book of the New Testament has five, it only has five short chapters that present ideas with great directness and simple wording applicable to everyday life for both believers and non-believers. This first chapter shows how faith can triumph over trials. Do we enjoy facing trials and persevering? James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In the May 1905 Christadelphian Advocate, the editorial section, Brother Thomas Williams wrote the following. The trial of our faith requires adverse circumstances of some sort or other. Perhaps the most severe test to which our faith is subjected is found in the disputes which cause ecclesial division, often resulting in the falling way of brethren in who we have had great confidence. The history of the truth has been a history of contentions and divisions, And since God had given man the power of free moral volition, his mercy has, shall we venture to say, been compelled to bear with humanly produced conditions. This is seen in his dealings with divided Israel. Our retrospect and warning appearing upon another page shows what has been the result of many failing under the trial of their faith. The past should be a lesson for the present. For the lesson is needed in this our day. The trial of our faith is going on, and we must be on the alert intelligently, kindly, but courageously. We cannot afford to please men nor parties. Numbers may have charms, but in the trial of faith, every brother must look to his own responsibility, every sister to hers. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life. The question is, brothers and sisters, do you, do I earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints? Do we believe, do we believe and not doubt? James chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, not wavering or doubting. 
Do we listen? Do we listen more than we speak? James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath or anger. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. We read in James chapter 1, verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. You know, about five years ago, our brother Chuck King was standing up at the podium, and he asked us all to write in our Bibles the following. The kingdom of God, make it your goal. Now, how many have that written in their Bibles? That's good. But it does, we have to have more than just that written in our Bibles. When you make a goal, you have to have a plan. Then when you have a plan, you have to implement it. And when you implement it, you have to have action. I have that written in the front of my Bible. I also have the following from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? In James, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, we read, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So we are told to be doers of the word. This this requires action. However, we should not boast of our good deeds to others. Because if we receive our reward now, what shall we receive at the judgment seat of Christ? We read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Well, the second chapter of James shows how faith can govern actions towards others. We have to have faith and do deeds. James chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, A man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. We read in James The second chapter, verses 21 to 24. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. From these verses we see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. The third chapter of James shows how faith can discipline the tongue. We have to be careful in what we say. James chapter 3, verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Likewise, we read in James chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. And then continuing with verse 8, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. We are told in this chapter to avoid envy and selfish ambition. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Who is a wise man and endowed with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. And then verse 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. And then verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Well, the fourth chapter of James shows how faith can purify character. We need to control our desires and pride. We read in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. From whence come wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Well, here we have scripture saying that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, are we proud or are we humble? We need to accept God's will as we read in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Go to now, ye that say, 
Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. In James chapter 4 verse 16 we are told, But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. And verse 17, we are told that anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Are we compassionate? Are we compassionate and understanding to others? James tells us to be understanding and compassionate to sinners. In James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. In the fifth chapter of James, we are told in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And in verse 11, We count them happy. We count them happy which endure. Well, this is a challenge to us, brothers and sisters, to have faith and patience. The fifth chapter of James shows how faith can create confidence in God. What is faith? What is faith? James had it. Paul had it. Jesus Christ set the example having it. And we understand faith to be belief or conviction, having taken on the dimension of constancy or consistency. Time has matured belief and causes the believer to act out his faith. Our actions are a true measure of what we are. We act out in our daily living the real character that is in us. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he, reads Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. As a man reasons, so is that man. And what is faith? Again, the Bible definition is, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, as we read again from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 6. Well, simply stated, could we not say that belief is the acceptance of testimony? It is the mental process of considering unimpeachable evidence that gradually matures into conviction. Paul says that hearing is a prerequisite to belief. We are told in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Where are we going to get the word of God other than from what's in his holy word? Once we have belief and faith, we need obedience. Obedience is humble submission to a higher authority. 
It is a faith that has ceased to question the reality of God, the childlike acceptance of the law and the lawgiver, a steadfast conviction that we are responsible and answerable to God. We are told, brothers and sisters, in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then we read in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Well, we have an expect we have an expected a Bible standard of morality in our ecclesial communities. We speak of it as living the truth. We are called upon to pay the price of faithfulness. We must sacrifice selfish wants in order to give. We must be willing to die for Jesus' sake if called upon, just like some of his disciples died in that first century. Faith would be akin to that which is revealed in the scriptures of truth, understood, believed, and acted upon. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1, says, and I'm going to read this from the Diaglot, but faith is a basis of things hoped for, a conviction of things unseen. However, before a person can believe a thing as a conviction of something, as a basis of hope, he must ascertain of what that hope consists. This can only be ascertained by a knowledge of the Word of God. There is no other source of information by which man may learn anything relating to his origin or destiny. Man may speculate and theorize about his origin without limit, but he is no nearer a solution to the question than if he could establish a belief as to his origin or destiny. He only knows that there was a time when he did not exist. Then there came a time when he did exist. This was brought about by natural law, and he is permitted to live for a few short years at most, and then dies under the same law that brought him into existence. And so far as nature reveals, that's the end of him. If we appeal to reason upon this subject, we are in the same dilemma. There is absolutely nothing in reason that gives any information upon the subject of man's origin or destiny. It does not follow that because we were, we perchance came into existence in the year so-and-so, therefore we must continue to exist indefinitely. Nowhere in Scripture have I ever found where a man was born with an immortal soul. And I'm going to repeat that again. Nowhere in Scripture have I ever found where a man was born with an immortal soul. And I've got a challenge to those young people that were in that class of Brother Bobby Cox's this morning. If you can find any place in the Bible where it says that man has an immortal soul, I'll, have, I'll give you a $100 bill. 
any of the young people, 15 and under, that can find that in their Bible, I'll give them a $100 bill if they can find where it says that man has an immortal soul. Because the same would be true of the brute creation. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. We read in Psalm 90, verses 9 and 10, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. We then read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. I said in my mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts, For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beast. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast. For all is vanity. All go unto one place. All are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Life even in the present state, depends upon certain conditions, which, if interfered with to any great extent, will deprive us of such blessings as may be derived from and enjoyed in this present mortal state. How much more does a life of glory, honor, and incorruptibility in a never-ending beyond depend? Well, Job tells us in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, that man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Well, the question to be asked after reading those verses is why is this? Why is this? The answer is to be found in the fact that sin entered into the world and death by sin And so death passed upon all men, as we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. There is no escape from this. The entire human race, from Adam down to and including the last man of the race, are under the sentence, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, as we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Well, if we take this view of the matter, the idea of inherited eternal life is excluded. Why would deity, why would God ever give to man that which man already possesses? There would be no need to give man eternal life at the judgment if man already possessed it. Now would it? Hence the great apostle to the Gentiles declares in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. 
So we must seek, brothers and sisters, young people, friends, we must seek for immortality or eternal life. And this is where faith comes in. We have an example in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. And inasmuch as that, that account was not successfully contradicted at the time that it occurred, it is a settled fact that it was true. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him, reads 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. Job asked the question in chapter 14, verse 14, If a man die, shall he live again? He didn't ask the following. It is, it is not, shall he continue to live in a state of happiness or a state of misery? To live again presupposes that he has once lived, has died, and is now dead. If he lives again, life must be restored to the one who had once lived and whose life is now extinct. But Job answers the question in an unmistakable way. Addressing deity, he says in verse 15, Thou shalt call, and I will answer. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. And then again in chapter 19, verses 25, 26, and 27, Job says, For I know it. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. The Apostle Paul, when standing before the council, cried out, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And that's from Acts chapter 23, verse 6. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Paul asks in chapter 26, verse 8. But to come a little closer to the text at the beginning of this exhortation, first we notice the expression in Jude, the common salvation, which pertains to each individual of the race collectively. All who are permitted, permitted to share in this salvation obtain it in precisely the same way. Precisely the same way. All are brought to a common level in the anointed Jesus. Neither is there any salvation, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved reads Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Jesus himself was first, first partaker of this common salvation, as we may learn from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, where it reads, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, we read, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, 
and was heard and that he feared. Well, then cross-reference this with Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, when Jesus prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now we know it did not pass. He drank it to the very dregs. This he knew must be. And because he had lived in perfect obedience to his Father's will, doing always those things that pleased him, God raised him from the dead because it was impossible, it was impossible that he should be holden of it. And thus the salvation that is common to all men was meted out to God's well-beloved Son. He was raised from the dead to die no more. Jude's exhortation is to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered unto the saints. The faith, which is according to godliness, is the one faith that we read about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. It is the faith that is one of the seven pillars of wisdom's house that we read about in Proverbs chapter 9. In conclusion, brothers, sisters, young people, and friends, faith is something definite. It is not a faith or any kind of faith, but it is prefaced with the definite article, the faith, as we read in Jude, verse 3. Let's look at that again. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. Hence, it does matter what we believe. Moreover, if we expect to obtain the great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, we must do something else. One of the keys to salvation is baptism. For Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And... Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Members of the human race who do not avail themselves of God's grace through baptism perish in Adam. Those baptized will be raised from the dead with the hope, the hope of eternal life. The Apostle Paul was drawing a contrast when he said, in Adam all die. In Christ shall all be made alive. Well, the only sense in which all in Christ will be made alive is that they will be the subject of a resurrection. The same resurrection that Job was looking forward to. The same resurrection that Abraham is looking forward to. That Isaac is looking forward to. 
that Jacob is looking forward to, that David is looking forward to, the same resurrection that we are looking forward to. In the scriptures, the term in Adam and in Christ are only contrasted in one testimony. That is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22, which read, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In this testimony, the apostle twice reinforces the universal connection of Adam with death and the special connection of Christ with resurrection and life. Man in his natural state is alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. This being so, it follows that before man can become a partaker of the benefit, he must first become acquainted with the great plan of redemption which God has wrought out in Christ, then believe it. Then be baptized. In other words, in other words, brothers, sisters, young people, and friends, he must have the faith that was once delivered to the saints.